We turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 16. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because, with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he also buried? thereby to prove that he was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? that by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations... I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell." Beloved, in this section of the Catechism, Lord's Days 14, 15, and 16, we have been considering the Catechism's teaching on the state of Christ's humiliation, Christ's state of humiliation, which is that legal status that Jesus had before God's law in which he was guilty of our sins and therefore suffered misery. And we saw that that state of humiliation has various steps. His lowly birth, that's Lord's Day, Lord's Day 14, then his lifelong sufferings and his death on the cross his burial, and finally his descent into hell. There's a book written by John Owen, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And that book defends the Reformed doctrine of limited or particular atonement. The idea, the truth, that Christ Jesus died on the cross in order to accomplish the salvation of a certain definite people, the elect, and not all men head for head. And in that book, John Owen teaches that Christ's death is the death of death. And that's the theme we have this evening for the sermon the death of death in the death of Christ. 
Notice then the death of God's Son, first of all. Then the death of our old man in the second place. And the death of our death in the third place. The death of death in the death of Christ. The Catechism calls our attention to the death of the Son of God in question and answer 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Perhaps you can catch the logic behind that question. According to the Apostles' Creed, Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. Next, the Apostles' Creed says, he was crucified. And we've seen what that means. He was tried and condemned. He was scourged and nailed to a cross. His blood was shed. He sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against our sins. And because he was crucified, he was cursed because the death of the cross was an accursed death. And now the Catechism asks, was that not enough? Could Jesus, after suffering many hours on the cross, not have declared, it is finished, and then ascended directly into heaven without dying, without death? Was his suffering, was his hanging on the cross, bearing our sins on the cross, was that enough, or was death itself necessary? And the Catechism insists that it was necessary for him to humble himself even unto death. That is to say, his death was necessary. It was not enough, beloved, for him to suffer the agonies of crucifixion Crucifixion had to end with his death. It was not enough for him to bear the wrath and curse of God in his body and soul on the tree. Those sufferings had to end with his death. And that death that Jesus suffered had to be a voluntary and deliberate death. Death must not take Jesus by surprise. He must not die reluctantly. He must not die passively. He must embrace death. And that's why the Catechism words it this way, humble himself even unto death. And as we learn in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus' whole life was a self-humbling. He humbled himself in the incarnation. He humbled himself, allowing himself to be tried before that wicked man, Pontius Pilate. He humbled himself on the cross. But he also must humble himself even unto death. Death 
is something that Jesus must experience and go through. And that means that the soul or the spirit of Jesus must be separated from his body in death. And that means that he must experience everything that death is. He must die under God's judgment, because that's what death is. Death is something that God has sent into this world as a judgment upon sin. He must die under God's judgment as the sin-bearing substitute. He must face death. He must conquer death for his people. His death must be and is the basis of our salvation. And Luke 23, which we read earlier, teaches us that Jesus died. He died. Verse 46 are the last words of Jesus. They're not, it is finished. That's not the last word of Jesus. The last word of Jesus is this, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then we're told, he gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. He expired. He died. And that means that his soul was torn from his body. That means that his body was now hanging lifeless on the cross. That means that his heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped functioning. He stopped breathing. His brain stopped functioning. He died. The Son of God, who took to himself a human nature, died in that human nature. And as his body then hung lifeless on the cross, his soul, or his spirit, was elsewhere. His soul was taken to heaven. We know this because in chapter 23, verse 43, he tells the thief, the one who repented, he tells him, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Which means, of course, if the thief is going to be with Christ in paradise, then Christ himself must be in paradise on the same day in which he died. And also in verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He's actively giving up the ghost, giving up his spirit, his soul, to the Father. And his spirit or his soul remained with the Father in heaven until his resurrection. Additional proof that Jesus died is found in his burial. That too is part of the Apostles' Creed. He was buried. And the Catechism asks why he was buried. And the answer is given thereby to prove that he was really dead. And we know this, of course, because we read in Scripture that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate permission to bury Jesus. Joseph provided 
the empty tomb. Joseph provided a tomb in which no one had been buried before. And this was a surprise to Pilate because Pilate did not think that Jesus would die so quickly. It was unusual for someone to die of crucifixion in only six hours, which was the case with Jesus. And so Pilate asks his soldiers to check to make sure that he was really dead. And we learn, of course, in John 19, that the soldiers came to Jesus to check if he was really dead. And he looked dead to them, and they were experts on death. And just to make sure, he thrust a spear into Jesus' side, and John tells us, forthwith came out blood and water. So Jesus died, and they checked he was really dead, and he was buried as proof he was really dead, and he was buried too that he might participate fully in death, the full experience of death. Burial is part of the shame of death. Why do we bury people when they die? It's because they decompose. We have to bury them out of our sight. Now, Jesus did not decompose because we're told that God did not suffer his Holy One to see corruption, but Jesus did experience in the body the shame and the gloom and the darkness of the grave, and in so doing, Jesus sanctified the grave for us so that we who believe in Jesus have no need to fear the darkness, the gloom, the shame, the misery of the tomb. And that, of course, is of great comfort to believers who are called to bury their loved ones. About the grave, the believer in Jesus sings, O grave, where is thy victory? 1 Corinthians 15, 55. But the believer can only sing that, O grave, where is thy victory? Because the grave has lost its victory because Jesus was crucified, Jesus died, and Jesus was buried. We've looked then at the death of Jesus as such, what it was, but now we have to ask the question, why was the death of Jesus necessary? In answer to that question, the Catechism directs our attention to the justice and truth of God. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. God's justice. God's justice is his commitment to himself as the only standard. His commitment to himself as the only standard. If God were not just, he would not be God. And God's justice requires the death of Jesus, not because of who Jesus is or because of what Jesus has done, but God's justice requires the death of Jesus because he is our representative. 
He has our sins on his account at this time, and therefore God's justice requires that that person, Jesus, die. The other attribute is God's truth. And God's truth is his faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his reliability. God is truth. And because God is truth, we can trust what he says. God's truth gives what God says binding authority, eternal authority, unchanging authority. Moses sings in Deuteronomy 32.4, He is the rock. His works are perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. If God said one thing, and then did another contradictory thing, God would not be truth, but God would be a deceiver, and God would not be God. And then we could not trust such a God, God is truth, and God's justice and God's truth demand and require the death of Jesus. And that is so because God determined salvation for us. God determined salvation through satisfaction for our sins, and that made then the death of the Son of God necessary. Because God loves us, because God seeks our salvation, and because God has determined our salvation, death, the death of Jesus, is necessary. Our sins must be paid for. God's justice must be satisfied, and God's justice requires the death of the Son of God. Because, as we have seen elsewhere in the Catechism, only the Son of God in human flesh is qualified to make satisfaction. And therefore, by our sins, you might say, we have made the death of the Son of God necessary. If we had not sinned, then the death of God's Son would not be necessary. And that ought to give us another reason to hate our sins. Our sins made the death of the Son of God necessary. Now imagine, given that God's justice requires it and God's truth demands it, imagine that Jesus had not died. Imagine that Jesus had suffered unspeakable cruelties in body. Imagine that he had suffered the misery of God's curse and the horrors of God's wrath. But in the end, he had not died. Perhaps he had done what his enemies had said. He had, he had come down from the cross, had saved himself rather than dying. Perhaps he said, no, I refuse to die. After, say, five hours on the cross, he said, I have suffered enough. 
I refuse to command my spirit to my father. I keep my spirit and my body together. I will not die. I will now return to heaven without dying. Then the justice and truth of God would have said, you have not paid enough. You've paid only some. Full satisfaction for the sins of your people has not been made. You must die. You must go all the way to death. And if Christ had done that, we could not be saved. We would have to perish. God's justice would require that we perish. God's truth would require that we perish. Of course, that's impossible because God promised that Jesus would die and God promised to give his son to the death of the cross. But hypothetically speaking, if he had not died, we could not live. So the catechism says, with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. The Catechism calls our attention to another kind of death, a death which is connected to and associated with the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the crucifixion, death, and burial of our old man. Notice question answer 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And the answer is that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. Our old man, used here in the Heidelberg Catechism and also in Scripture, is our sinful nature or our flesh. And the Bible calls this our old man to teach us that this old man is not foreign to us. This old man belongs to us. And before our conversion, we were the old man. We consisted of nothing except the old man. Man. And now by virtue of our conversion, we have the old and the new man, as Lord's Day 33 will explain. Our old man, then, is that sinful principle that dwells in us, that dwells within us. Our old man is in us the source of all our sinful thoughts, words, and behavior. Romans 7, Paul explains what the old man is, although in that passage doesn't call him the old man, but calls him sin and flesh. Verse 8 says, for example, Romans 7, verse 8, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Verse 17, now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 21. 
I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see in Romans 7, beloved, that there is in the Christian a struggle, a fight, a war between the old man, the sinful nature, and the new man, which is received in regeneration. And that makes the Christian then, beloved, very different from the unbeliever. The unbeliever is the old man. The unbeliever has an old man. He is the old man. He is nothing but the old man because the unbeliever does not have the new man. And therefore, there is in the unbeliever no such struggle. There's no struggle in his heart between a principle of sin and a principle of righteousness for the very reason that there is no principle of righteousness or holiness in the heart of the unbeliever. But there is in the believer. The believer struggles. On the one hand, his old man, which is part of him, loves sin and is attracted to sin. On the other hand, the new man, which is the new life of Christ within him, his new, his true identity, hates sin and loves holiness. And that's the experience of the child of God, a struggle between the old man and the new man in the heart. And you ought not to despair, beloved, when you experience such a struggle, you ought not to conclude from that struggle you're not a child of God or you're abnormal in some way. It's a sign of life within you that you have this struggle. If you were dead in sin, you would have no struggle because those who are dead in sin don't have any struggle of this nature in them. Sin simply controls them. But the Catechism teaches us about this old man that he is crucified, dead, and buried. Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. Our old man was also crucified, dead, and buried. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul especially. Romans 6, verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Galatians 5.24, They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Galatians 6 verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I to the world. If you are a Christian then, your old man is crucified. He's crucified. You have, by virtue of that, you have crucified the flesh and its lusts. You have, as Paul says. If you are a Christian, the world is crucified to you and you are crucified to the world. You are dead not in sin, but to sin. 
you live unto righteousness. And that's because Christ was crucified, he died, and he was buried for you. Which means that there is a real legal connection between you and Jesus Christ. When Christ died, he nailed your sins to the tree of the cross. And when he did so, he procured for you the forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life. But Christ did more than that. When Christ died, the old you died with him. The old you. The you you were when you were an unbeliever. That old you died with him. When Christ was crucified, the old you was crucified with him. And when Christ was buried, the old you was buried with him. And that's how you must view yourself. You must say, the old me, the old corrupt me, the old totally depraved me, the old unbelieving me, the old God-hating and neighbor-hating me, he was crucified, he died, he was buried with Christ. In a legal sense, then, you were there when Christ died, although that was 2,000 years ago, you were there. In the person of your old man, you were there. The old man was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And that means he has no longer power over you. That's how the catechism continues, the purpose of this, or the result of this, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's wonderful. And yet, we must understand it, we must do justice to it, but we must not overstate it. The Bible does not teach here that the old man of the Christian has been eradicated. You might think, well, if the old man is crucified, dead, and buried, that means he has been eradicated, destroyed, annihilated, and is gone. But that's not the case. Instead, he's crucified, killed, or put to death, and buried only in principle. And by in principle, I mean in a beginning or as a beginning, in a principle, a small beginning. That's how God works in our salvation. He works in this life by giving us salvation in principle, in a beginning. In principle, we are dead to sin. In principle, we can say our old man is crucified. In principle, we have new life. But the old man is still there. The old man still tempts us and works in us. There's still a struggle there 
If there were no struggle, we could say we're finally free and the old man is completely destroyed, but that's not the case yet. Nor does it mean that the old man is improved by the death of Christ. As if the old man is no longer totally depraved. The old man is and will remain until the end of your days totally depraved and terribly evil. The old man in your flesh today has not improved with age. And Paul speaks in Ephesians 4 of deceitful lusts. If anything, the old man has become more deceitful, more refined in his depravity, more desperate to lead you into sin. The struggle is fierce and ever fiercer. And the more the new man is in you, the more fiercely the old man struggles for supremacy. And just as Satan has great wrath because he knows that his time is short, so the old man within us is enraged because he has but a short time to indulge the lusts of the flesh before he is destroyed forever. And therefore expect a mighty struggle in your soul between the old and the new man. The truth is not this, that the old man has been eradicated or removed or taken away, but rather the old man has been dethroned. The language of the catechism is, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no longer reign in us. You could say this way, that the old man or the corrupt inclinations of the flesh, that they dwell in us, they are present in us, but they do not rule in us. They don't reign in us. They're not on the throne of our heart any longer. They're there, the corrupt Inclinations of the flesh are there. Lust is there. Greed, pride, hatred, they dwell in us. They lurk in us. But they're not the dominant influences of our life. And the Christian is free. Free from that sin. He does not have to. And he must not serve sin. Sin is not his master or his Lord any longer. Jesus is Lord. And when Jesus regenerated us by the Spirit, he came into our hearts by the Spirit, and he set himself on the throne of our hearts and says, I am Lord now. Not sin. Sin used to be Lord. I am Lord now. But the unbeliever, he's still under the power of sin. He's still a slave to sin a slave to his lusts, a slave to his pleasures, a slave to the world, a slave to the devil. But the Christian is free to serve God. Dead to sins, says Peter in 1 Peter 2, 24. Dead to sins and lives unto righteousness. Where then is the power to live a new and godly life? It's not found in your willpower. It's not found in your resolutions. It's not this, 
I will be better today by the power of my will. It's this, I trust in the crucified Savior. Notice, the Catechism says, what further benefits do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And the answer is, that by virtue thereof, or by its power, by the power of the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross, by that power, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried. The power then is not of us. The power is of him. And when Christ died, he took your sinful nature and he crucified it. And therefore, you must not willingly serve sin or make yourself a slave to sin. Because when you do that, you deny everything that Jesus did for you on the cross. A Christian who serves sin is a contradiction. Romans 6, 12 Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. I almost said dwell. Let not sin therefore dwell. No, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body or rule in your mortal body. And that brings us then, we've had the death of the Son of God and the death of our old man. That brings us then to the death of the Christian. The death of the Christian. Question 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? And that seems a fair question. If Christ died for us in our place as a substitute, should not we then be exempt from death? Why do we also have to die? And the Catechism says, but there is an important difference between Christ's death and ours. When Christ died, he died under the wrath and curse of God. When we die as believers, we die in the grace and under the blessing of God. When Christ died, he died because God was angry with him, not because of his personal transgressions, he had none, but because of our sins which he bore, and therefore God's anger or God's wrath was directed towards him and turned away from us. When we die, our death is not an expression of God's anger or wrath against us. When we die, we die in the full confidence that God still loves us and favors us even in our death. Christ's death, says the Catechism, was satisfaction of God's justice. Our death is not. Answer 42. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. As we die as we suffer prior to death, as we go through the experience of death, God is not coming to us as an offended judge and saying, pay me what you owe. 
I am now in your death, on your deathbed, by means of your suffering and death, I am now extracting from you what you owe to my justice. That's not what God's doing in death to us. Because Christ has paid the debt in full already. And that too is the error of Rome. Because Rome teaches that you can satisfy for your own sins by your own sufferings and your own death in this life and then afterwards in purgatory. But we believe, as the scriptures teach, that Christ paid it all. And God does not exact from us a pound of flesh, as it were. And so our death is very different from the death of the unbeliever. When unbelievers die, their death is an expression of God's wrath against them. Every misery that God inflicted upon the unbeliever throughout his sinful life is an expression of God's wrath. And when the unbeliever dies, God visits him in wrath to take him to hell. And death comes and summons him to the judgment seat where he must answer for his sins. And the sting of death is sin. And the strength of death is the law. And the unbeliever's death still has the sting in it because Christ did not die for such an one, assuming he dies in unbelief. Christ did not turn God's wrath away from such an one. Christ did not pay the penalty for such an one, and therefore he dies in his sins without forgiveness, without righteousness, and therefore he must perish forever. And even then, the unbeliever does not by his death make any satisfaction for his sins because the sinner cannot satisfy God for his sins. Only Christ does that. Even hell is not satisfaction for sin. Hell is not remedial. Hell does not improve the sinner. Hell does not satisfy God's justice. Hell is only punishment. And so the unbeliever must repent and flee to Christ and trust in Christ's death as the only satisfaction for sin or he will perish. And that's why we take comfort from the article in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. It does not mean that Christ went to the place called hell, as if after death he was tormented in the flames of hell. That's not the meaning of that part of the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. It means this. On the cross, as the very essence of his suffering and death, Christ experienced what the Catechism calls inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies. In other words, Christ's descent into hell describes his sufferings on the cross. They were hellish agonies. And that means, too, that by his sufferings and death, he has delivered us from the anguish and torments of hell. Because Christ suffered hellish agonies on the cross for us, we do not suffer such hellish agonies after death. 
Far from being the expression of God's wrath and satisfaction of his justice, death for the Christian is gain. It brings enormous benefits to the child of God. The first benefit is answer 42. It is only an abolishing of sin. That is perhaps one of the greatest benefits that we receive in death. An abolishing of sin. When we die, at the point of death, when our soul is separated from our body, we will no longer be able to sin. Our old man, who has been crucified, dead and buried, will then finally be destroyed. Then he will be abolished. Then he will be eradicated. Then the struggle will be over. The abolishing of sin. We can hardly imagine that. Waking up in heaven without hatred in your heart, with no envy in your heart, with no sinful lust, no greed, no covetous, covetousness, no fear, no unbelief, a pure heart. In heaven, one day, all of your sins will be a distant memory. You'll be able to love God and your neighbor perfectly without sinning. That's an abolishing of sin. Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the spirits of just men made perfect. We're just men. We're just men and women. We have been justified. One day our spirits, our souls will be made perfect. And then following our souls, one day our bodies will also be made perfect. And the second great benefit Answer 42, death is a passage into eternal life. It's a doorway, as it were, a doorway which brings you into eternal life. That was Christ's promise to this thief on the cross. This thief recognized, because the Spirit worked in his heart, the faith to recognize it, that Jesus is the true King of the kingdom of heaven. He read the superscription above Christ's cross. This is the king of the Jews. He noticed Christ's behavior and he concluded by faith that this man was indeed a king. And he says to Jesus on the cross, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus answers, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The death of that man was for him a passage into eternal life. And Christ says the same thing to us. Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Perhaps not today, perhaps not next year. We don't know when, but one day Christ will come to take us in the soul or will come on the clouds of heaven to take us body and soul and will say to us, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Death is not satisfaction for our sins. 
It's not an expression of the vengeance or wrath of God. Death is the means by which God brings us to heaven. And that's why we say the death of death in the death of Christ. Christ has killed our death. Christ has so transformed our death that it is no longer an enemy, but a friend. Death is a friend to us, and death brings us into everlasting life. When Christ died, his soul went to paradise. When we die, we join him in paradise, and therefore we do not fear death. We rejoice in death. That's the power, beloved, of Christ's death. Christ's death satisfied God's justice. Christ's death killed our old man. And Christ's death killed our death and made it an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. And that's our comfort also in death. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for the death of Jesus, that his death has accomplished our salvation. We thank thee that by virtue of his death, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried and that by virtue of his death, our death is but a passageway into life eternal and an abolishing of sin. Teach us these things, write these things upon our hearts, cause us to believe and rejoice in these things, for Christ's sake. Amen.